Good morning. Pleasure to be here with you guys today. Um, one of the things I've really enjoyed uh, is getting to know Randy and his family. I've been to Huntsville a couple of times now. I uh, really like the town. I grew up in Buzzard Roost, Arkansas. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's between Snake Island and Cottonwood. Uh, you won't find any of those on the map. Uh, but it's a little bit better where my wife's from. She's from uh, Conway, Arkansas, which is between uh, Toad Suck and Pickles Gap. <laughs> and don't make fun of Toad Suck because as of this day, 23 years ago, my wife and I had our first date at Toad Suck Park. So uh, she has honored me and been a very, very patient woman over the years. So thank you for that. Uh, there's my daughter. She's uh, 15. She's recently turned 15. And I'm feeling quite older than I have in years, I believe. Uh, but I want to thank you guys for, um, for your support. It's meant a lot to me. Uh, and I don't know if everyone in here knows, but uh, Central has played a very foundational role in getting the church plant uh, off the ground and, and running uh, as far as uh, support, as far as encouragement. And uh, thank you for your financial contributions, your prayers. I'd also like to especially thank Libby and uh, Lisa. Y'all have helped me out tremendously. And uh, Randy, thank you for being a friend and mentor. I can't imagine doing it without you. So thank you guys for that. It's meant a lot. Um, we're continuing the theme uh, today with uh, meal and ministry and food and fellowship that Randy has really been working on over this time. And uh, we're going to be looking at Luke 7.36 this morning. Luke 7.36 is where the passage is from. I am a uh, son of a uh, cotton farmer, now a corn farmer in Arkansas, so um, at times I tend to mumble, uh, and I get that from my grandfather and my dad, and so uh, my wife is usually the translator, I don't have her with me, and uh, when, when I was talking to Randy about coming up, he said, uh, you know, they're not used to uh, such a southern accent uh, at the church. And I said, Randy, we call it a drawl. We don't call it an accent. Um, so let's, uh, let's read here in Luke uh, 7.36. Uh, today we're going to talk about the idea of uh, Jesus again around the table at a meal um, and how he responds and acts in that situation. And Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. Uh, and then we're going to pick up that story, uh, Luke 36. Going to uh, verses 50. One of the Pharisees asked to eat with him, asked him to eat with him, and when he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table, and behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited uh, him, which would be Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. He said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now which do you think would love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he went canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with the, her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those that were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God bless the reading of his word. So the sermon we're going to talk about just a, a little bit today is entitled Hospitality and Human Dignity. Uh, I've listened to a few of the sermons that, that Randy has preached uh, to you guys recently uh, about the idea of hospitality. And hospitality is, I believe, one of the lost arts in our civilization today. Um, I've been in education for a while, and one of the things you'll notice when you study uh, civilizations and history is that uh, there's an age-old question throughout history that continues to come up again and again in lives of individuals. Uh, and it goes something like this. Are we defined by who we are or what we do? Now, you've probably never pondered that in, in the way that some people in history have, in a, some philosophical, theological way, or, or you don't do it on a daily basis. Uh, but we all struggle with this question in some way or another, and it has to do with uh, our struggle for identity or where we find our identity. For instance, I may... Do I find personally my identity in being a son of a farmer and being from Arkansas? Or in my spouse? Does my spouse find her identity in being my spouse? It's obviously a part of it. Uh, do we find our identity in our, our children, in our hobbies? Uh, maybe we define ourselves as an avid golfer, a woodworker, an artist, a musician. What, are the, what is it about who we are that we reach for our, our identity in the things that we do? And, the, and, and it's so intertwined here. Last uh, year, um, I taught a seventh grade ancient history class. All right, so, so imagine this. I'm studying ancient Greek, ancient Roman times with seventh graders, 13-year-olds. Uh, and a lot of times when I tell people that, they, they look at me in the same sympathetic way of when I first started teaching. My first year, I taught logic to eighth graders. <laughs> now... As an eighth grade boy, one time myself, I know at that point I was thinking about anything except for how to live and think logically, right? So, so I'm talking to my, my seventh graders, and we're studying Greek civilization. We're talking about the Roman Empire, Julius Caesar, Achilles, great kingdoms and heroes of the past and in and, and literature. And we also studied a group of peculiar men. Uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, men that uh, history categorizes as philosophers. And they always talk about these categories of being and doing, who you are and what you do. And the question uh, of who you are and what you do, when I talk to the, the, the seventh graders, they really like this question, probably even more so than, than people that are, that are my age, because they're always struggling with identity issues at that age. They're always trying to figure out who I am. One of the most confusing times in the history of the world 
no matter how hectic my life gets or how stressful it gets, one thing I know, I do not want to be a middle schooler again. If you're in middle school right now, like, I'm, I'm sorry. And if you love it, then your heaven was just my hell, I guess, because uh, it just was a confusing time for me. But it's quite interesting to see them struggle with uh, this discussion. And somewhere in the discussion, I asked them this. Is it more important that someone is of noble birth, like a king or a prince or princess, or that they act nobly or with dignity, even if they're born into slavery or sold to slavery like Spartacus? And they like talking about this idea of nobility and, and how we get our dignity and how we find our identity. Now, uh, today we're not going to be engaged in answering that, those philosophical questions, but these are great categories when you think about Jesus' life and the events uh, and how he explains who he is and unveils who he is uh, in Scripture. And we're going to continue the theme today, focus on the events in Scripture where he's sharing a table, sharing food with others, and the significance of those meals and how they show who Jesus is uh, and, and what these actions tell us about how we can live more and better as a human being. Now, what Jesus does... And even the phrase made popular a few years ago, what would Jesus do, uh, is only a part of the understanding of his ministry. If you miss who he is, and he's again and again trying to get people to understand who he is, and, and that's really a question. When he comes on the scene, he's from Nazareth, he's a carpenter, uh, and they're pe- asking people like, hey, didn't we see him in Nazareth, like working on a table? Uh, isn't, he, isn't this the son of Joseph, the carpenter in Nazareth? And so everyone's struggling uh, with this idea that, so now he's, healing people. He's raising people from the dead. Uh, And today, even, he forgives sins. You're like, who is this guy? And Jesus, being the master teacher that he is, constantly answers questions with questions. A lot of times it goes like this, who are you, Jesus? And he says, who do you want me to be? Or who do you think I am? Right? And and as a teacher, he's trying to get to the heart and the root of the issues there. Now, it's not only interesting to see how his questions are answering the questions, and they show insights to not only who he is, but the heart of the person that's asking that. Quite, answer, uh, quite often he answers who he is through meals, like he's going to talk a little bit about today, and even saying things like, I'm the bread of life, right? This is my blood, the wine. This is my body, the bread. And so it's going to be good to revisit this because people in their mind are already at this point in Luke. They already have opinions of Jesus, right? And so... Some of the uh, people's opinions of who he was, uh, some of them were favorable. Rabbi, teacher, prophet. Some not so favorable, right? Um, A friend of sinners, which was always meant as a derogatory phrase toward Jesus. And that's the one we embrace probably the most as sinners. Um, A glutton. A drunk. They didn't like who he was hanging out with. And then they didn't like what he was doing in those social situations. And Jesus keeps challenging them and pushing them to show him he's more than a teacher. He's more than a prophet, right? He was the son of God, and he continually moved people towards seeing that. The Messiah, the one, and ultimately that they would see he's their only hope. So we're going to examine this passage today and thinking about this for just a moment, hospitality and human dignity and how it relates to this whole being and doing uh, and who Jesus is. So let's look back at the passage for a moment. Um, Verse 36 says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. Now, there's a lot of things that we're going to see here 
about the, the culture here. We don't recline at tables. You don't pull the recliner up to the table when you come to my house. Uh, I always thought that might be a great idea, uh, kind of joining everything where the table is brought in the living room where you're on the recliner, you can watch the game and eat at the same time. We tend to do that nowadays. Uh, but, but first of all, you need to understand uh, not only the cultural setting, but the, the motive of the Pharisee. The Pharisee is not asking him over because he loves Jesus and has an overflow of his admiration for Jesus. He wants him at the table. It's just the opposite. Uh, when you look at the context of Luke's gospel and the interaction with the Pharisees, and even the Pharisees' action in this passage, we'll be able to, to deduce that his motives are, are really that he's doubtful and suspicious, and he wants to really see if Jesus is a prophet, right? They're always questioning, are you really a good teacher? Are you really a prophet? And they're always trying to trip him up. And so the setting here is fascinating. Uh, when you... Go back, and, and Randy has alluded to this in different ways of cultural insights here. So imagine this. If you're back in the days and you were hosting a party, you were a Pharisee, and you invite all of these folks over to the house, first of all, it did matter who, by way of your social standing, who you invited far more than it does nowadays, right? Who you invited by way of uh, social standing. The seating arrangements, right, were based on status and important, but even when you came into the door, right, nowadays we come in, uh, we may greet them with a handshake. Hey, hey, buddy, how you doing? Give them a big hug, and, and let's go eat. But there's something a little more ceremonial, a little more, uh, there's a little more pomp and circumstance and ritual around this. First of all, they're immediately categorizing the people that come in, right? And we tend to do these as people, right? Uh, we see someone immediately, we're saying, all right, what clothes do they wear? Uh, what, what, uh, what job did they have? Uh, what, how, how nice were the shoes they're wearing? I always love that thing in the mall when I'm walking with my wife and the other ladies do the look down from, from her head to her feet and then back up. I don't know if y'all have ever noticed that. Every lady in the room is like, yep, we do that. And we've seen people do that. All the guys are like, what? Uh, but the, uh, so anyway, they're coming into the room as a Pharisee and they're categorizing people like, how important are they? If you were one of those that were seen by the Pharisees as important and a status, uh, you had status in the community, uh, you were giving a formal greeting at the door, you were giving a customary kiss, right, like uh, the European greetings. Uh, you were giving a servant either, at t even at times, to attend to all your needs. And you were giving water, right, to wash your hands and wash your feet. Right, feet got, The feet got a lot of a dirt on them because they were traveling everywhere with sandals on, basically. And so, but if you were least of these, if you were lower, right, if you were just the average person, right, you might get uh, a, a, a nod like, okay, I acknowledge you're here. You can go make your, make your place at the table. Just don't sit in the most esteemed positions. And so all of this meal is built around social constructs. All of the meal is bent on order and control and placing people exactly where they should be by way of their identity and their importance. Now, there's one little problem here. And we're going to see this uh, at, in verse 37. So picture this. It's a room full of men, primarily, around the table. And uh, they're either off the ground or in some kind of mattress on the floor. But they're always reclining toward the table uh, and with their feet out uh, at the meal. And so verse 37 says, And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclining, uh, when, he, when she learned that Jesus, he, was reclining at the table, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, this is when it gets quite scandalous. 
She was a woman of the city, and her reputation was basically that she was the town center. Uh, I've heard people go into elaborate details on that. I don't think we have to. She was, had a horrible reputation in town as just being the town center. Uh, and this was quite a scene, and this is, especially in that day and age, but even now, a host's worst nightmare, right? This is like when you have people over here uh, invited to dinner, maybe you're doing a business deal, trying to impress them, or just knowing people in the community, your first thing, and your crazy Uncle Larry shows up drunk, you know? It's kind of like, it's kind of like, and I'm always hesitant to use this now on the Andy Griffith show, right? Uh, and, and even in my house, I have a 15-year-old daughter, we watch the reruns together. Uh, I, don't, I think there's still people, probably because of Netflix or something like that, they're still watching the Andy Griffith show. But it would be like Otis, the town drunk, showing up at Aunt B's quilting party, right? Um, but it would actually probably be worse, right? Um, and so when, when we think about this scene, um, it, it's quite scandalous. Verse 38 says this, And standing behind him at his feet... Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. The actions of this lady, right, show total abandonment of reputation, show complete brokenness. She's weeping, right? The, 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 the glory of women during that time was their hair, right? And she's using that as a paper towel to wipe his feet and her tears to wash them. Total abandonment. She has nothing left. She's sacrificing everything and bringing it to Jesus. And she's willing to forego humiliation, being laughed at, and made fun of, all to honor Jesus at a time when he's not, at a place where he's not that popular, right? In what would have likely been a room full of men. Now, verse 39 says, And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Notice he didn't say it out loud. And he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this woman is touching him, for she's a sinner. All right? So it's not only uh, scandalous that she's there, right? But her submitting and t making herself totally vulnerable to Jesus is even more scandalous. And the Pharisees saying, if he would know, if he was really a prophet, he'd know everything about this woman, which he did. We know that. Now, note the Pharisees' assessment of Jesus as a prophet and what it's based on. Notice his perspective, the Pharisees' perspective on the outcasts of the community, the sinners, the broken people of the community. And then finally, think about his demeanor, his hardness. Think about the moving scene as this lady is just undone in her sorrow and brokenness. The moving scene and how callous you would have to be to respond the way that he responds. And before you judge the Pharisee in the same way he judged this woman, before we judge the Pharisee in the same way that he judged the woman, we need to think about what our response might have been in that situation, right? In our household. If we were in a, in a, in a banquet at someone else's house, right? It'd be awkward. It would be embarrassing at the least, right? And who would be the safer place? Where would be the safer place? Who would be the safer person to agree with? Right? What would we do? Now, so Jesus answers fascinating. Verse 40 says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, you notice how Simon said the last thing to himself? He didn't say it out loud. 
But Jesus is like, I got something to say to you, Simon. And Simon thinks, well, no possible way he can know what I was thinking. I said it to myself, right? And he said, say it, teacher. Right? And then he tells the parable about a certain money lender has two debtors. One owed five denarii, the other owed 50. Oh, that would be like a day's wages compared to half a month's wages. Right? And the guy forgives them. And he says, who do you think loved them more? Now, there's a, it'd be easy to miss the point of this. Uh, and, and, but you think about this. Um, basically, he's thinking at this point, well, the person that is forgiven the most is going to love the most. Uh, but he's still left with the idea of, but I don't really have to worry about that because I don't have to love the person that forgave me because I didn't owe him as much, right? Uh, so if we go on, um, he said at the end, uh, you have judged rightly. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I... She, uh, that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. All right? So Simon would obviously, even in the parable, it may have left a little doubt that, hey, I don't have to worry about it because, of course, she loves you because there would be more to forgive, but... I don't have as much to forgive. And he's basically saying, but he who's forgiven little is going to love little, right? It's soul capacity that Jesus is trying to, trying to build in the Pharisee. And it's soul capacity he's trying to build in our lives as we reconcile the fact of how dark and, 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 and broken we are in our sins. And then he says uh, in verse uh, 48, he says there, your sins are forgiven. And those that are at the table begin to say among themselves, who is this that... Even forgive sins. And he said to the woman, your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So what did the woman do that the Pharisees didn't do? Right? She honored Jesus. Right? And she loved him in a way the Pharisees never could. Why? Right? Now, there's a side to where you can say, yes, she honored him because, of course, he's a rabbi and a teacher. And she's lower on the totem pole. But does that mean she loves Jesus more? Couldn't the Pharisees have loved him more? Now, at this point, right, uh, it would be inconsistent with the teaching if you thought, and what you took away from the story is the same thing that Simon may have, is that Simon needed less forgiveness, right? At this point, in the story, Simon should have come to the realization, and we should have come to the realization of this. The one who realizes the depth of his sin will be the most desperate to, to seek forgiveness and the most grateful for grace, right? Instead of standing in a position of judgment, Simon should have seen the woman who is in bondage to sin, the woman that was, that was seeking radical escape and forgiveness from her sin, cause her to give up all her dignity. He should have thought, that's me, right? This is what turns the whole thing upside down. This is what Jesus is trying to do when he comes in to turn the world upside down. He's trying to get people like Simon the Pharisee to realize without the grace of God, that would be me at the feet of Jesus, broken, undone, and being named as a sinner in this town, right? In fact, if Simon was honest, he wouldn't understand that he was in the same situation as the woman that had destroyed her reputation by immorality. He should have known, I'm just better at hiding it. It's by the grace of God, I haven't had to be in that position before. 
Number one, because maybe he was a man. But number two, because of his uh, position. Now, here's where I want to make the main point of the day. And this is, this is the point of uh, forgiveness and, and love as it connects to hospitality. Uh, because in some way, we view hospitality as a knack. Uh, kind of like some people view cooking. It's just kind of a knack. Like some people are better at hospitality, some people are not. Uh, we're all called to this. But throughout Scripture, there's a deep connection between forgiveness and love. And Jesus is bringing it up right here as far as what's hindering Simon the Pharisee at his front door from being able to be hospitable to people. From being able to love everybody in his store. Because uh, as you come to terms of the fact that you're forgiven, it frees you to forgive and love more fully and to dignify people and be hospitable. Because it, it kind of goes like this. It's brokenness, right? Until we reconcile how, how dark our hearts are and the brokenness, right? We'll never see a need for deep forgiveness, right? Maybe we rationalize it. Maybe we think, well, I did something wrong there, but it's not near as bad as the other person. Until we come to grips with that we are broken and we are just as bad off in the same position on the soul level as anybody else I see, then we're never going to get to the second part. And that is seeing and embracing the need for forgiveness and embracing it deeply, right? And then from there, being willing to submit and be vulnerable uh, sets you free, and the forgiveness sets you free to free other people. Because I know people that I've seen that cannot, because they can't forgive themselves for certain things, it makes it hard for them to forgive others, right? Much less someone that doesn't even think they needed to be forgiven in the first place, right? As a pastor in Chelsea, Chelsea's, Chelsea's an interesting town. Uh, you've got all these new affluent suburbanites. It's the next go-to bedroom community from Birmingham. And so you have all these uh, this influx of, of affluent suburbanites. And then out there you have uh, people that are a lot like me, uh, just uh, a little down-to-earth, a little earthy, a little redneck uh, around the edges. Redneck's not a derogatory term. White trash is a derogatory term. Redneck, redneck's not. You don't know the difference. We can talk after the sermon. Um, because all white trash want to be rednecks, but not all red. Anyway. Um, all that to say, see, we're back to categorizing label again. You see how easy this is to do? Even for me, I'm repenting right now publicly. Uh, but, the, um, but one of the things uh, that, that you have is old Chelsea and new Chelsea there. Um, and, and part of it is that people are having trouble. There's these old, good old boy churches there in the community, and then there's these new storefront churches, and, and nobody's going to church at the same church together, right? You have old Chelsea, new Chelsea, but it is a boom town, right? Uh, and and there's, there's so many places there. And so as a pa- new pastor in the community, someone aspiring to plant a church, I pray that as I minister to those in my town, including those with addictions to drugs, addictions to pornography, who cheat on their spouses, those who have given up their dignity in desperation for money or for want of attention, that I will never set myself up as being better. I hope I never think, no matter who I encounter, that I'm some way better and not in their position because I'm smarter or more spiritual or I made better choices than they did. Or that I'm more moral or decent or more of an upstanding guy or my mom taught me better than that, right? I hope that when I encounter the drunk, the woman hooked, or man hooked on crystal meth, 
the businessman that has a reputation in town for cheating other people or the man or the woman that jumps from relationship to relationship in my community in Chelsea, Alabama, or even a Pharisee or a snob or the suburbanite that looks like they've got it all together. I hope that one thing that I always realize is and not forget that that's me without the grace of God. If I can't look at that poor soul that I know when the police have it's not caught them yet that they're selling drugs out of their trailer three blocks down from where I live right now, right? And forget that that could be me without the grace of God, then, then I think I'm not worth my salt as a pastor uh, in that community. So here, uh, in conclusion, let's just kind of tie it all up together. Hospitality begins simply with dignifying others. Basic human dignity, right? Just basic human dignity, just pe- treating someone like a human being, right? Requires us to be cordial and civilized with others in the community and to be nice. But we're talking about a step further here. But the gospel demands that we look redemptively at everyone in our path and calls for us to be hospitable to everyone we see. And so how do we get there? You may be saying, like, all right, James, I I, I get this in principle, uh, but this doesn't come natural to me. I'm not the guy that stops people on the street and talks. And likes to talk to him about uh, Jesus, right? Or I'm not the guy this cold turkey knocks on somebody's door. Guess what? I'm not either, right? Uh, and this is harder for some people than it is for others. My wife makes this look effortless, uh, and I look like a curmudgeon in, 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 in social situations, right? Compared to her, I'm antisocial, right? Uh, so if you're thinking that, I'm there with you. I'm struggling in the same way. So how do we get there? And you say, I definitely want to get here. And this is it. Randy's been talking to us about inviting people over to meals. Uh, he's, he's been talking to us about the, our six list of people. But, man, it's just, I have so many hang-ups about that. So what is it that aids and assists and trains us to be hospitable to our community? What is it that helps us with that? Especially those that are not like us. Especially the folks that we wouldn't normally hang out with. How do we go get to a place where we embrace those around us that make us feel uncomfortable? Maybe even at times not safe awkward or share a different view of life than us um if we forget the radical transformation of god's grace we're going to miss the point and it will be hard for us if we forget the darkness of our own heart and we forget to the extent that we've been forgiven if we can't see them and say that's what we look like to jesus then 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 it will be hard we will tend to be judgmental and we'll be picking out flaws in others and we'll be unable to dignify them Right? We won't even be able to look redemptively at them. We'll, we'll be unable to celebrate God's moving in their life and their working in life. But this is, this is what I'm saying. Here's the point of the whole thing here. But when we look at others around us as human beings, made in the image of God, and we begin to view ourselves as just as broken and in need of forgiveness as anybody we would ever meet, and realize that whatever predicament or peculiarities that they may have, they're no different from us. We're all a bunch of broken, messed up sinners whose only hope is in Christ. Then and only then will we be able to embrace the kind of hospitality that Jesus is is modeling and calling us to in the gospel. Then and only then will we be able to love them with the love of God. So maybe, maybe the answer to who we are and what we are, or what we do, are connected or intertwined. As we embrace and further realize that we're sons and daughters of God that have been given the freedom of life and love that can only be achieved by the gospel are being 
we're able to do what God requires of us by way of dignifying those who are not even able to dignify themselves. And we'll be free to practice hospitality to everyone in our path. And we have Jesus not only as our model, but our only hope of experiencing ourselves true dignity and freedom. We have Jesus to think for that, right? Not the decisions we make. Not the way we pull ourselves up to bootstrap. It's in our, our thinking, right? We have only Jesus to think for that. Only Jesus and his death and resurrection that made forgiveness possible. Can we approach communion today, right, through the bread and wine? Are we able to come into communion with a, a Father that's holy, right? And so as we embrace the elements today and as uh, let us remember that God has embraced us as sinners, we are embraced by a loving Father uh, who makes it possible, and we have Jesus to thank for that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your Son. Uh, without him, we would all be outcasts. We would be known as the sinners in town. We would be known as the broken people. Help us to, to, to lead with that in our community. Help us to approach people in such a way that exudes humility in the way that your Son did, who was without sin. If Jesus, who was without sin, and your very Son, could show this kind of hospitality, help us, God, right, to acknowledge our own brokenness with one another, make ourselves vulnerable, and know that it's only in the righteousness of Christ and the hope of Christ that we can approach you on your throne and have communion with you at this table and show hospitality and dignify those that are in our community. I pray for Central. I pray for uh, Chelsea, uh, Church Plant, St. Ambrose. Uh, just pray that we would all be salt and light in our communities. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.